0: You're listening to Hidden History, the show that comes out, well, practically every week. And I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, besides, well, you know, keeping to my publishing schedule, drop me a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. Or even better, because I don't think I've ever actually checked that inbox once, uh, you can shoot me a message on Twitter, my handle is at Ellis A. Tucci, and I would love to hear from you. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or dot show, and learn something new today. So, this is the second part in a series made up of honestly an unknown amount of parts. I guess I'll finish it when I feel like it's been fleshed out enough. Uh, Last episode, I talked a little bit about the ancient equivalent of modern labor structures, so I figure I'll move forward a little bit in the chronology this week and talk about labor theory during mercantilism, which was the transitional economic ideology between feudalism and capitalism, emerging in the mid-to-late Renaissance. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 49, Mercantilism? Gotta come up with a better name before I record this. <clears throat> um. Anyway, so what exactly is mercantilism? Well, to put it obviously, mercantilism is a form of national economic policy. As a policy, it advocates for the production of excessive export goods and the minimization of imports. Mercantilism implies the maximization of state participation in economic planning, as in order for mercantilist policies to succeed, high tariffs must be placed on all foreign import goods. In this way, mercantilism is a form of economic nationalism. This idea is further enforced by the critical fact that mercantilist philosophy views trade as a zero-sum game, which means that in any trade deal there is a winner and there is a loser. For those who subscribe to the school of economic thought, there is no such thing as a mutually beneficial trade, and as a result, if two mercantilist entities have economic interaction with one another, both will fight tooth and nail to be on the quote, winning end of the deal. Because of the nature of this conflict, there isn't really room for things like trade wars in the mercantilist worldview. Rather, the expansionist, export-based model of the system necessitates imperialism to continually find markets for the home nation's goods. As a result, mercantilist conflicts are not resolved by trade war, but rather in a different way. Of course, you know, this means war. But mercantilism isn't only focused on the creation of tariffs. There are a number of other things that are pretty integral to the philosophy, and So I'm going to talk about them. The imperialism necessitated by the mercantilist system also meant that colonies of these imperial powers were locked into trading with only their mother nation, who could then set the price on colonial goods at a whim in order to maximize the exploitative colonial relationship. So now we need to talk about the concept of the staple port, which is a designated city port that ships would be mandated to stop at on their way to their final destination. Once a ship reached a staple port, they had to unload all of their cargo and present everything for sale at a local city's market. Not only did this create a monopoly market that allowed for artificial pricing, but it could easily tack on more than a week to a voyage, meaning that staple ports, and therefore mercantilism, increased the time invested and therefore the ultimate monetary cost of shipping. Often, it would be illegal to transport goods on a ship that was not registered to the relevant imperial power. A common example of this is England's Navigation Acts, which were passed in the mid-1600s to regulate and elevate the importance of the British merchant fleet. If you want a more recent example, though, the United States actually has a similar piece of legislation currently on the books, the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Of which, Section 27, known as the Jones Act, says that any ship carrying goods by water between American ports must not only be American-registered, but also American-owned, American-built, and American-crewed. In short, the whole thing is based around protectionism. But it's not just about protectionism. To say so would be pretty reductivist. It's also about labor exploitation. And to talk about this, I need to bring up another hallmark feature of mercantilism. Severely limited wages. The mercantilists knew that if someone was paid a certain wage, they could afford to occasionally take time off from work. They saw the desire of their employees to have lives outside of the workplace as dangerous to the potential productivity of a given business. So how did they attempt to solve what they saw as a problem? Well, they did it by giving everyone as meager a wage as possible in order to force them to work more to survive. Mercantilists see wages and productivity as inversely proportional. In the framing of this labor issue, we can see the way that mercantilist theory regards labor as a factor of production. It kinda doesn't. That's to say that even though labor is antecedent to capital, mercantilism treats labor as an extension of capital. If the mercantilist view of labor relations is accepted as true, then it justifies paying workers artificially low wages to extend their hours, as those workers belong in the factory. They are, essentially, just another component. Mercantilism began to unwind in the mid-1800s, but let's not get ahead of ourselves here. The mercantilist way of doing business significantly changed the economic structure of the colonizing nation, yes, but it had a much more significant and much more long-lasting impact on those nations which it colonized, which, I mean, I should think is kind of obvious. For example, even though the United States revolted against its mercantilist master, in its independence, it maintained a large majority of British trade policies. The American Revolution was political, not economic, which means that the glaring problems of mercantilist society we're still present in this more perfect union. This convenient point of fact leads us to one place. (music) Philadelphia in 1835. Or, I suppose, a little bit earlier than that. In reality, 1833 which was when the GTU, or the General Trades Union, was formed. Now, from 1833 to 1835, the GTU had success with organizing workers. It was the first large trade union, and its goal was to create solidarity across all workers, regardless of skill, in every sector. This is an idea that would remain popular as time went on, laying the groundwork for the IWW's idea of the One Big Union. Now that we have this important contextual information, we can skip ahead two years and talk about the GTU strike of 1835, also known as the Philadelphia General Strike. It had humble beginnings, starting as a strike among coal haulers at docks on the Schuylkill River. They were striking for a 10-hour day. Now, normally, almost everyone—agriculture workers, construction workers, coal haulers— They worked what was called a sun-to-sun shift, or sunrise to sundown. Obviously, the length of the day depends on the time of year, and depending on the time of year, there could be more or less work for someone in a given trade. This meant that during the winter months, for example, an itinerant farmer would have a very difficult time finding work, and during the spring and summer, when there was work to go around, days could be as long as 15 hours straight. And so in May of 1835, 300 coal haulers formed a picket line at the docks, and a man with a saber said that he would kill any scab that crossed it. Seventy-five ships laden with coal sat at the docks untouched. Seeing this, the house painters went on strike as well, labeling the, quote, present system of labor as oppressive and unjust, destructive of social happiness and degrading to the name of free men. Soon after, the house painters and the coal haulers came the bricklayers, and then the masons, and then the carpenters, and then the blacksmiths and the plumbers. Then came the dry goods store clerks, the bakers, and, the most important, the employees of the city of Philadelphia. At this point, the city had completely come to a standstill and it forced the Philadelphia Common Council to legislate the working day as 6 to 6, with an hour for breakfast and an hour for lunch. The strike was won. The whole thing lasted a meager three weeks, ending on June 22nd. As a result, membership in the GTU went through the roof. It spawned a series of strikes all around the country, such as the Patterson Textile Strike and the Washington Navy Yard Strike, both in 1835. But unfortunately, the future was not rosy for the GTU. The panic of 1837, caused by Andrew Jackson's incredible shortcomings as a legislator, wiped out the GTU and almost every other attempt at labor organization. It would be another 50-some years before the labor movement was permanently established in the United States. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing to talk about in this gap. This episode was largely a transitional one that I wanted to use to lay the groundwork for things that led to the eruption of the labor movement in the 19th and 20th centuries. So while I did spend a good amount of this episode talking about mercantilism, it's necessary to know just what exactly it is before we can talk about any real union-heavy content. You know, we've got to walk before we can run here, folks. I hope I did a relatively good job conveying the ideas of mercantilism and tying that in to the Philadelphia general strike. But so now that the real content of the episode is done, uh, it's time for me to do a little, you know, advocacy for the show. Uh, this is something that I've been doing for, for a long time, a few years now, and it's something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, I, if you enjoy this show in any degree, or you hate it and you think that I'm really dumb, Uh, then I would really appreciate it if you shared it with your friends and family so that you can bond over either enjoying or ridiculing my content. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you want to subscribe to the show and get alerted of new episodes, that would go a really long way towards my goal of making the show an accessible resource for important history. If you want little tidbits of history, politics, and architecture, uh, and, debatably, much more, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at LSA Tucci. I always think uh, it's really amazing when I come across someone who listens to the show. So if you have any thoughts about what I do or want me to do an episode on a certain topic, uh, just tweet at me and I'd love to talk about it. I really, really hope that you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying this mini series that I'm working on. Uh, I'm enjoying it a good amount. Next week, I'm planning on talking about the Chicago Haymarket, uh, early 1900s leftism and anarchism, and go figure. More strikes and unions. If that's something that interests you, uh, I hope that you'll tune in next week. But until then, this is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.